I am George Knapp listening to That UFO Podcast and having one hell of a good time. That UFO Podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Some of the incredible features include live soundboard editing, automatic post-production, and secured cloud backup. I do love that automatic post-production on my podcast. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Colm, if you were part of those hearings or at least trying to make up a manifesto of what should be discussed, what are some of the two or three main topics or, or questions you would like to hear answered as part of those hearings? Well, one of the first things I would want to know is exactly how much money is being allocated to this program and and to who uh, and exactly how many people are going to be hired. Uh, and, and so... We, right now, we have almost no uh, information on how many, uh, how many FTEs are going to be hired for this, this program. Uh, the Department of Defense has this nasty habit of, uh, you know, retasking people without actually forming official what are called billets. And once you, once you form an official billet, you have a full-time FTE. So that means that that person is dedicated to this set of tasks that are funded, but if, if you actually just say, okay, let's draft in a few people who already are have billets, they already have full-time jobs. So, you know, you're really sort of bringing people in who are not full-time, who are doing things on almost their own time. I mean, this is this is really what happened with ATIP all the way back in, uh, in you know, 15, 12 years ago or whatever. I mean, there were really no full-time people that were dedicated uh, on a day-to-day basis. And the only way of addressing this problem is to have full-time people. I mean, right now, the, uh, the head of the, uh, the uh, what, what used to be the task force, um, you know, I mean, this guy was a part-time guy, um, after, the guy after Jay Stratton, a part-time guy who was already fully tasked. And suddenly he was said, he was given the, the task of, you know, the UAP task force. So unless you have, um, a good tranche of funding that is absolutely traceable in terms of creating extra billets um, to, to engage with this, you're always going to have a bunch of people who are over-tasked and are doing this practically on their own time. And that is really no way to run a program because that's exactly how Project Blue Book was run uh, from the Air Force. Nobody was like full-time doing this day, day by day. The contrast to that was OSAP. I mean, well, I'm not trying to toot our own horn here, but there was 50 people on OSAP who were fully tasked, tasked 40 hours a week, 12 months per year on doing nothing else. There was, they had no other tasks except focus on this program. And, you know, until AOI MSG actually gets full-time billets, you know, and, and until we know what kind of level of funding they have access to, um, you know, I think it's all smoke and mirrors. And you can make a, a part-time sort of job that you're doing on your own time, you know, make it into something that it's not hyperinflate and exaggerate what this program is actually doing when all you, ha- you know, you've got a couple of people working a couple of hours a week 
on the program, it's not going to achieve anything unless it's fully funded. And right now, we, we have no real information of the extent of funding. I think what they count on, Andy, is Congress will move on to something else. There's always, you know, there was a shooting here at, in the in the U.S. Uh, at a Fourth of July parade today. Six people gunned down. Um, I've seen, yeah. That's not a yearly or a monthly event or a weekly event in the U.S. That's daily. It happens every day. You know, the, the issues over the U.S. Supreme Court and abortion have, have Washington in an uproar. Um, there's always something new. The war with Ukraine and its effect on gasoline prices in this country, there's always some other issue that's more pressing uh, than UFOs. And I think the Pentagon people who are hostile to the topic are counting on that, that members of Congress who asked really good questions at this first hearing will move on to something else and then they can do what they've always done, which is to shove this in a drawer and get rid of it. Um, you know, OUSDI is hostile to the topic. Air Force is hostile to it. If they are going to have a program involving those two entities, and we don't know what the budget is, we don't know how many people are going to work at it full time. Um, we do know that the jobs that have been advertised to work for the the new organization are two-year jobs. Uh, I think they probably are counting on this being a two-year thing, and then they issue a report. It's all solved, all taken care of. There's nothing else to find here. Move along. I think that's what the plan is. I'd be very surprised if it goes in some other direction. I think that segues nicely then onto the, the Brazilian hearings that happened recently because we rely so much on the United States to to drive forward this UFO conversation. And here's myself sitting you know, in the UK, which does little to nothing to move and progress the UFO conversation currently. So Brazil had a set of what was essentially citizen hearings with scientists and journalists and others presenting. Um, what were your thoughts on the Brazilian hearings, George? And was it was it as impactful as it could have been? I have to admit to you, I have seen very little of it. I, I didn't have a day that I could sit down and watch that whole thing. I'm encouraged by it, uh, that there is at least a patina of official government involvement uh, in the process. Uh, you know, we've often wondered, well, if the U.S. is not going to come clean on this, if the American government, the Pentagon is not going to come clean and, and tell what they know, might another government around the world uh, go ahead and spill the beans, uh, come close to what we'd call capital D disclosure. The Brazilians are a candidate to do that. To do that. Column and uh, both the OSAP program and I think NIDS as well, uh, they interacted with the Brazilians, with the Brazilian Air Force. It was a big component about what we describe in the book, the skinwalkers at the Pentagon. They went down there a couple of times, interacted with the Brazilian Air Force and brought back a ton of files. That went into the database that was created by OSAP. Those guys seem very open to working with Americans, with being out in out in the open on what they know, and I'm encouraged by it. I, you know, I haven't seen the whole Brazilian hearing, but the more openness, the more information, the better. Colm, let me ask, as someone who's had that experience with other governments and how they handle this subject, why does it seem that the US is the gatekeeper of this huge secret and that they have all the crashed craft and they have got all the materials and the bodies and you know it's I'm using some hyperbole I'm not saying they necessarily do but many would say they do why hasn't another country came out and said we have this crash saucer or we have found this material you know why hasn't someone else just led that conversation well I think for better or for worse the um you know since 1947 when 
um, you know, the, the sort of the public awareness of this whole phenomenon escalated dramatically. We're now, as George said, we're in the 75th anniversary. Uh, Kenneth Arnold, we just passed the Kenneth Arnold sighting. We're going through the, the 75th anniversary of the Roswell sighting. So for better or for worse, the United States approach to the, uh, to the UFO topic has always sort of, it has always been a leadership role. Um, and, and, you know, the, as we investigated the op- Operation Prato, or, or Operation Plate, the, uh, the Brazilian uh, Colaris events uh, as part of the, ba- the OSAP BAS program, um, we, we ran into this whole thing where um, there were a lot of files um, associated with uh, the Brazilian Air Force that were, were gradually being released over time. And, and actually, um, we interacted very closely with uh, General Uchoa, who um, at the time, um, he's since retired, but at the time he was the Brazilian equivalent of the head of the Department of Homeland Security. So he was very much um, involved in sort of um, keeping an eye on what was, what was being released, what kind of information that uh, op- the, the operation plate was uh, had and what kind of documents were, were available. So the OSAP teams down in Brazil interacted with General Uchoa. We interacted with General Uchoa in separate meetings in, in Washington, D.C. Um, so um, the upshot of that was that there was a release of documents um, you know, 10, 11, 12 years ago um, as a result of these overtures, but there's an awful lot more that's uh, that's been kept hidden, and there's all always been whispers that there is an American hand in the uh, in this whole process, and that there is a um, a leadership role that the United States uh, government always has had um, in terms of dictating to the Western world, at least, uh, where 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 things are and what could be. Um, you know, what could be released. I don't know what the situation in Russia or China is right now. Um, I, I do know that there was a lot of, George has a lot of background with uh, what was happening in Russia. Um, there are uh, occasional reports that we're seeing uh, from China in, in terms of, you know, the full-blown UFO activity and potential, potential access to technology um, you know, and obviously behind the scenes, there's a Cold War going on in terms of what kind of technology the United States has sequestered. And the last thing they want to do is to have, um, you know, reverse engineering teams from China or Russia, um, you know, availing of technology that the United States has in its possession. So it's a very complex, um, you know, house of cards but, you know, for better or for worse, the United States, I think, has been in the leadership role on this for decades. And, you know, I don't know if it's possible for another country to take the lead. George, Cole mentions yourself and your reporting on Russia and that sort of knowledge. Some would say that Russia's performance in Ukraine currently would back up the idea their technology is maybe not as advanced as we would expect because they're they've really struggled to you know even cross it seems like roads at times with the kind of mud and terrain. Is that too simplistic an argument though when it comes to to UAP technology that well the Russians don't have it because they would use something akin to a better technology than than what they're using in Ukraine? 
There's a friend of ours, a mutual friend that Colm and I have. He has a saying when he talks about Russia. You know, he was asked, well, could these things that we're seeing off the West Coast, are they Russian drones? His response was, Russia is like a gas station with nuclear weapons. You know, they're, they can't build a decent car, let alone these advanced anti-gravity devices like the gimbal or the Tic Tac. So they're not, they don't think that these, the Russians are building these things. But the Russians can build nuclear weapons and hypersonic missiles and things of that sort. Some things they're pretty good at. Uh, the logistics of, of what their military technology is versus what they can get into the battlefield, we've shown it, it's been shown in Ukraine that there's a big gap there and what that they want to do and what they're capable of doing. Um, look, we, we've all heard the stories about the, the United States is not the only government that has crashed saucers or recovered technology or metamaterials. There are a lot of hints that I heard in, in Russia during my two visits there. That was back in the 90s that there are places, these institutes, these cities that don't exist on a map where this material has been taken to be studied. You've seen some provocative incidents uh, involving Russia where their, their warplanes will buzz our ships, where they come way over the line, way too close to the U.S. military. Provocative instances where they seem to be begging to go ahead and unleash some kind of technology. I think they've got something. I think they've got a, a weapon system that, that they've developed based on something they've recovered from somewhere else. Not a full-blown anti-gravity flying machine, but some kind of a weapon. And I think we're trying to work on a similar weapon. Uh, I, you know, We hear stories about that from China. Uh, I'm, I'm less uh, definitive about that, but I think the Russians do have some of this stuff. They've had it for a long time. Like us, they've been trying to reverse engineer it. And like us, they haven't had much, much luck with it in figuring it out. Uh, I don't sell the Russians short. Uh, they're incredibly destructive when they want to be. Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising, with 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them? Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream, or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's creator network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Host-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's creator network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favourite creators like me. I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they've truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts, I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one that's the number one, or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Cool. And I'd, I'd also add that the, um, you know, that <clears throat> just following on what George said, I mean, those documents that George brought back from Russia from the, the very early 90s, you know, just during the perestroika era, um, you know, one of the, pro the projects that OSAP Bass had was in sort of uh, putting analysts and translators on those documents. And, you know, what, what really became obvious during that analysis was there was an organization called uh, Unit 73790, 
which was buried in multiple different aspects of uh, a very sophisticated organizational chart uh, through, throughout the, Soviet, the then Soviet Union that, that encompassed both government, private sector, and all of academia. You know, there, were, uh, there was over a dozen organizations involved in this gigantic UFO program and buried in the middle of this as a sort of, a, you know, as a low-key orchestrator was this unit 73790. And this was like all the way back 30 years ago. So when Senator Reid was sort of first uh, becoming more and more alarmed about the possibility that the United States may fall behind the, the uh, either Russia or China in this kind of uh, UFO sort of behind the scenes uh, reverse engineering program. I mean, he, he had actual sort of genuine concern that this could happen. And, you know, when this report, uh, when the analysis uh, that, that sort of put the finger on this unit 73790 came out, I mean, it was obvious, you know, from the reactions that, you know, there's a lot of concern in the United States about what the, cap the capabilities were 30 years ago in terms of what Russia had and fast forward that all the way through um, to where we are now. So, you know, there could well be technology behind the scenes that, uh, that you know, the United States is very concerned about. But, you know, 30 years ago, um, that OSAP report uh, showed unequivocally that the uh, then Soviet Union transferring into Russia had a very sophisticated uh, well sort of organized uh, program that dwarfed anything that the United States had at the time. Um, and all the way back in 1990, I mean, there was really nothing. There was a couple of unofficial programs going on behind the scenes, but there was nothing on the scale that the Soviet Union had. I'll add this, Andy. Uh, one of the, inter the people we interviewed in Russia, the first trip I was there in 93, was a Russian scientist who worked on their the equivalent of their Star Wars program. He had never spoken to a journalist, not just a Ru an American journalist, certainly, but a, he hadn't even spoken to a Russian journalist. He hadn't used his real name in public. And he came forward. It was the time when there was a window of opportunity there and spoke to us. He said, yeah, we've, he showed me, they had this funny little thing sitting on the table when we came into the room where we interviewed him. And he had been living in one of these star city places that didn't exist on a map for his whole career, working on advanced weapons, weapon systems. And he showed me this little tabletop thing. He called it the weapon of the aliens. And he pressed a button and this beam burned a hole instantaneously in a razor blade. He said, this is what we're working on. We want to be able to develop this technology, what we call the weapon of the aliens. We know that the Americans are working on it as well. We want to beat you to the punch. This is also goes to the heart of why I'm I'm not encouraged that we're going to get anything like disclosure anytime soon is because there's a race for this technology. We're trying to figure it out. The Russians, the Chinese are trying to figure it out. How far each of those nations have gone, we don't know, but we're never going to release this information because we don't want them to know how far along we are. It is always going to be a matter of national security. And I think that you'll have people, the organizations like the U.S. Air Force and OUSDI that will never come forward and tell us what we'd want to know because of the national security implications. 
Well, one organisation that um, for many, many years and decades has seemed to be behind the times on the subject, but only in the last couple of months has really kind of come back to the forefront, is NASA. And they announced an independent study just a few months ago was going to be um, taken into the subject of unidentified aerial phenomenon. Colm, let me come to you first with this one. Now, many would say NASA already know a lot more than they are letting on, given some of the footage that's online you can view on YouTube, but also the very nature of what NASA do and the equipment they already have. And, you know, their equipment is in space. Do you think that line of thinking is too conspiratorial or is there something to that? Um. You know, when I when I was with Bigelow Aerospace, we uh, worked very closely with NASA for over five years. So, um, you know, we got we got into the uh, the sort of swing of things of how they manage projects, um, how they oversee projects, and you know how often they change personnel is uh, astounding. Always has been astounding to me um, uh, that the general sort of way of doing things is. If you've got a two-year project, you generally change program managers about three times or four times during that two-year project. And each time that, that, that uh, NASA changes somebody like this, the new person has to come up to speed. The old person is, is transferred out on, you know, onto something completely different. So there's this constant learning process that's going on. And you know, you've got people of indeterminate um, competence that are sometimes uh, replacing people who really knew their stuff. So you've got this constant revolving door. That's one aspect of this. The second aspect is follow the money. And, um, you know, this new program that uh, that NASA was talking about has been funded to the tune of $100,000. Now, $100,000 may get you a couple of really sort of technically astute graduate students, you know, somebody who's just done a primary degree and uh, maybe, you know, that they, they could have, you know, they could leverage a few interns onto this. But, you know, the kinds of, an, of, of information that NASA was putting forward in the context of this announcement, um, you know, all you have to do is follow the money to, to see exactly where uh, this, this whole thing is going to be allocated. At most, I would say it's an afterthought. <clears throat> I think it's kind of like an element of the Me Too movement and NASA, where you know they're seeing the Pentagon getting a lot of this this sort of uh, press and all of that, and somebody at NASA has, has decided, okay, we better get on this because you know we're supposed to be involved with the uh, you know with the whole uh, with the whole extrasolar extraplanetary uh, mission. And here we have the DOD who's dominating this whole thing when uh, we should be part of this game. So I, my own feeling, is knowing how NASA operates on a day-to-day -day basis uh, from multiple different programs and multiple different organizations within NASA, um, I'm slightly skeptical. But, you know, as a counterpoint to that, you know, if you go all the way back in history, and you look at, say, the DOD Clementine mission to the moon and, uh, you know, what the kind of data that was gathered with that and that the overlap with some of the program managers in NASA. I do believe there are people in NASA who, uh, you know, who are cognizant of an awful lot more than the vast majority of people at NASA. The, the last thing I'll say on this is that 
routinely when myself and Robert Bigelow would be at various site visits and Johnson Space Center uh, in, in Houston or NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C., or, you know, Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, we would inevitably be drawn aside, you know, uh, out of the meetings sort of in the in the corridors and sort of people would come up to us and whisper about, you know, that they knew this and that and this about the UFO topic, but it was never out in the open. I mean, it was always sort of sub rosa and behind the scenes. So, you know, there's that sort of culture at NASA too, where the, the giggle factor is very strong. I would add this, uh, you know, the Senator Bill Nelson, uh, as when he was back in the U.S. Senate, he got some of these briefings that were delivered to the Intelligence and Armed Services Committees. He sat in on them and he's made those public comments that he was really impressed by what he saw by the likes of Jay Stratton, the briefing that he delivered to members of Congress and higher ups in the Pentagon and intelligence agencies People like David Fravor and the other pilots who'd experienced the Tic Tac and Gimbal, they appeared and spoke to these guys. And several of these elected lawmakers came out of those meetings stunned uh, by what they had seen. Bill Nelson is one of them. He's made good, I think, on his pledges that this is worth investigating. And as the head of NASA, he's expressed, he said some amazing things, you know, in public forums and to reporters about the importance of this and why it's a legitimate uh, topic for inquiry. And I think. This program that they've announced, as Colm said, it's a hundred grand, which is like lunch money for NASA. Uh, it's not very much, but you know maybe it leads to something else, uh, depending on the kind of uh, uh, response they get from the public. Today in the U.S., uh, on January, I mean on July fourth is the day we're recording this. There's an editorial in the Washington Post. The Washington Post editorial board, one of the most influential editorial boards in the United States put out a release that said NASA is to be congratulated for going after this. boy, go after it. It should be under NASA. It's always been so strange and counterintuitive. You know, we mentioned about the hostility of the Air Force and OUSDI to the UFO topic. NASA's been right there. Uh, officially, on the record, they've been incredibly hostile to it, which counterintuitive in the sense that if you had evidence of extraterrestrial life or some kind of previous life on Earth, on Mars or Venus or somewhere else in the cosmos, what it would do to, to NASA's budget. You'd presume that they'd want to find it, that it would be a great adventure. That's what they're supposed to do. But they've had to be dragged kicking and screaming to get anywhere near this topic. You remember in 1977, Jimmy Carter is president. He had vowed as a, as a candidate, when he gets in there, he's going to release the UFO files. One of the first things he did is tell NASA, get on this. And they basically told him to buzz off. Uh, they weren't <laughs> going to do it, even at the orders of the president. Um, why an organization like NASA that presumably would be really interested in what's out there would resist uh, studying this has really been curious over the years. We know that some of their astronauts have made some pretty provocative statements about things that they've seen, films that they've seen, encounters they had as they were test pilots, uh, but uh, officially uh, they want nothing to do with it. So even though this is a very small program and a small budget, it represents a huge change in the attitude of NASA from what's happened in years past. I'm encouraged by it. I hope it leads somewhere. 
Colm, you made a great point about you know NASA and the the churn and, and that overturning of staff at different levels, and that's something that's levied often at the U.S. government and other governments. That that statement that the government know what's happening with the UFO topic. Well, the government isn't one or two people. The government is departments, and we hear the word compartmentalization, and I'm sure NASA is exactly the same. And you know, if you say NASA know what's going on, well, who is NASA? Is that the the guy or the women sitting at their desk that are you know they have a job at a computer console however on the other side of that we do now have bill nelson like you mentioned george who is uh, well briefed on the subject he is i suppose a fan and friendly to the ufo subject what's to stop with with those interns Colm, you mentioned and i'm going to go down a layman's route here i think because it's as good as i can get a hundred grand gets you a couple of interns. What's to stop Bill Nelson saying, look, given the comments we've had from former astronauts on certain missions, uh, given some of the footage that is clearly available to the public online on YouTube, what's to stop those interns just going through some of that footage and some of those previous missions and just, just archival stuff and going, what can we present? What can we bring forward that looks looks anomalous? And is in line with what this, you know, task force is potentially looking for. Yeah, really, I think it really all depends on um, who these who these people are. I mean, whoever is tasked on that. I know we have a couple of names, um, and actually, you know, I'm hoping to learn an awful lot more about the inside of this program soon. But it really it will all depend on who is tasked uh, to do this because. It'll either be a going through the motions exercise or it could be, depending on the people involved, it could be a tremendously productive uh, first step in a, in a much longer process. So, um, you know, the, there is a tremendous amount of footage um, that NASA already has. Um, and it would be a question of going through the red tape, going through the various departments. And NASA is incredibly compartmentalized. And so sociologically, you know, each of the independent centers are, are fiefdoms, essentially. And so you've got, you've got a lot of sort of um, lack of communication between the main centers, and there's a, equally a lack of communication between the uh, headquarters at NASA in Washington, D.C., and all of the different centers. But, you know, I'm an optimist, so... If there is a couple of really good people put on this and that it is a, a step forward and some actual genuine data is put together um, that could be useful as a first step in a multi-step process, then I do see it as a, as a, as a possibility. Um, you know, the other part of this whole thing is one reason for NASA's reluctance um, historically is in this is that the uh, SETI Institute, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence has uh, originally was associated with NASA and then it became sort of uh, private and sort of has always had a relationship with NASA and that overflows into the astrobiology uh, realm in at NASA where the origins of life have been researched. There's always been a gigantic chasm between the UFO topic um, and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence topic. And, you know, SETI was always sort of trying to be more respectable than the UFO topic. So it's, it's a bit like this uh, latest uh, 
a science magazine, uh, uh, Salvo against uh, Travis Taylor, uh, SETI Institute badmouthed UFOs at NASA for decades, as and the astrobiology community, which is aligned with the SETI uh, community, has also badmouthed UFOs for decades at NASA. So, um, what we're seeing in the last six months with Bill, Senator Bill Nelson is a major quantum leap. I mean, there's no doubt about it in terms of the sociology of this uh, of this looking at this phenomenon. I totally agree with George. It is a sea change uh, for NASA to actually step up. From uh, a company who is very much in the stars, I want to talk about another one, George, that you know well and have reported on to the stars uh, with Tom DeLong and Jim Semivan still very much appears to be in the game, so to speak. Um, I was on the Jim Semivan and Tom DeLong's call a couple of weeks ago to investors and others uh, when they were announcing the new media deals that they have going. And I just wanted some thoughts from both of you on this. Um, now, Monsters in California is due out soon. And Tom DeLong said they're trying to get distributors for that. Tom DeLong claims that these are very much a way of disclosing the UFO subject and related phenomena through a modern media like like movies. Now, that's not new. Close Encounters, The Third Kind and other movies as such have been around for a long time. But what are your thoughts, George, first as to, to what To The Stars' role is now in the UFO movement, given what they've, they've done from 2016 and, and on, onwards? I think that the world has, has sold Tom DeLonge short uh, and the public has made a lot of mistakes in underestimating uh, the energy and intelligence that he has and his ability to get things done. I suspect it is fair to say that Tom and To The Stars shot too high, that they they really had goals that were not reachable, that the first incarnation of the company, they wanted to build a, a craft, an anti-gravity craft uh, based on what they uh, reverse engineering programs they'd heard about and a lot of other ambitious uh, projects that didn't come to fruition in part because the public, the investing public didn't come forward. They didn't sign up. They didn't send them a bunch of money. So all the plans that they had in mind sort of went out the window and they had to be scaled back. And, and uh, you know, and now it's a much different company. Elizondo and Mellon have left. Uh, Steve Justice has left. The plans to build their own craft are gone. But Tom has always been an effective communicator an effective entertainer, a great storyteller. He's got. Uh, he's been telling us for a long time. He's got these great movie deals in the works uh, to go along with recording deals and other things. His books have been successful. So if the new revised TTSA is scaled down to an entertainment company and just focuses on that, I suspect that it, it can be a big success. I, I got to spend some time with Tom a couple of months ago. I went down to San Diego and we went to a ball game to see the Padres versus the Dodgers and had some uh, chance to catch up. And, you know, he's as boundless energy and enthusiasm. He's a smart uh, guy and uh, he loves this subject matter and he's going to drive it home. Now, whether or not the public will perceive the movies and the books, fiction books that he puts out as being the actual story, the real deal, I don't know. It'll remain to be seen, but I've learned not to sell him short. I don't own any of the company stock uh, and I, 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 I'm not encouraging people to buy it. But, but I wish him well. I, I hope he does well. 
Colm, when George was mentioning Tom DeLong and his intelligence and his drive, you were nodding along, uh, and I'm presuming that's that's notions that you want to agree with, but also what are your thoughts on this idea of discussing topics like Skinwalker Ranch and some of those experiences that you studied and have investigated and written about, and putting ideas like that out into the public through kind of team rom-com slasher romance thriller type movies? <laughs> Yeah, rom-com on Skinwalker Ranch, I think, would be a really good uh, good theme. I think, you know, depending on who's who's behind, you know, who are the actors, you could you could get something steamy going in uh, in Homestead <laughs> too. <clears throat> but you know, seriously, I, I I do think it's a very viable way of of getting the information out. You know, I think the um, the the Hunt for the Skinwalker movie that was put out with Jeremy Corbell and George um, there uh, a few years ago, I think it, it got a lot of traction and it, it, it generated a tremendous amount of enthusiasm. And it also uh, boomeranged back into um, the, you know, uh, the books. It, it, it caused a lot of discussion, you know, with us. Um, uh, we, ha- we got people contacting us that we would not have contacted us uh, asking questions, so it provoked a lot of dialogue. So I see uh, the media as being a tremendously, um, you know, um, promising avenue for for putting this word out because, you know, books can be pretty dry. Not a lot of people read books. Audio books are are better than normal books. But then you've got movies, and then um, I mean. That the the end point, the logical end point of this whole thing is TikTok. But you know, quite frankly, I have not uh, not had any experience with TikTok at all. But I do see the the movie uh, business as being a very legitimate way of of changing an awful lot of people's minds. I mean, I still remember walking into that that movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, that Steven Spielberg did. And, um, you know, I remember being floored by that movie. It was like a game changer for me. And, um, you know, I think it did, did the same for millions of people. So I think the media has a tremendous role to play. There was a scene, uh, you know, Independence Day, July 4th. Again, we're recording on July 4th. The movie Independence Day, um, you know, of course, a lot of the stories that I had covered for our news were incorporated into that about Area 51 as the place that, you know, that repels the alien invasion. And and I remember being at a special screening of that movie uh, weeks before it came out with the director and the producer were there sitting there with members of the public. And they come to that scene where uh, the president is being informed there really is a place called Area 51. And people in the audience going, see, I told you it was real. I'm thinking to myself, boy, after all these years of me reporting on it, and they finally accept that it's real because they saw it in this movie. Um, I, I was aghast and also encouraged at the same time. So a movie is a great way to convey it and to catch the public's imagination. Uh, the X-Files has proven that. Yeah. Colm, Colm, I agree with you when you mention a TikTok. I prefer TikToks to TikTok, definitely. It's, it's one that's passing me by, even at 36. Um, but I want to ask George, you mentioned Tom DeLong and the public didn't go along with the cash that they were looking for, for those big plan A plans. Is there a little bit, though, of the the character of Tom DeLong, much like Travis Taylor has suffered from his TV persona with with some 
that people look at Tom DeLong and say, that guy, that guy's going to be the the disclosure head. And that's why people, one, didn't invest, but we've still not seen a public swelling that many, many hoped for to to kind of jump on the Tom DeLong bandwagon. I guess that could be part of it. Uh, I think it's unfair. Tom has boundless energy and great enthusiasm, and he's a smart guy, and he knows about as much as about UFOs and the history of the phenomena and the studies, the secret government studies, as almost anybody in the country. Uh, so his knowledge is actually pretty good. I can see people wondering, is this the guy we follow to the disclosure promised land and wondering uh, if he is, in fact, the right guy. But Tom surrounded himself with top-notch people. Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon and Hal Putoff and, and Jim Simavan and, and Steve Justice, if they're looking for credibility, he had it. And, and to give them credit, TTSA changed the national, the international discussion on this topic. They took this stuff to the New York Times and talked the Times into, into going forward with the story. It was nice to have the Tic Tac video to go along with it and to be able to have Dave Fravor confirm that it was true. Uh, all those contributed to it, but really... Tom DeLong putting together his organization, having a place for Lou Elizondo to land, and then taking that his celebrity status and using that to get in the door with people at, at uh, Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, and then uh, eventually to the New York Times, that changed the whole narrative. It changed everything forever. Whether you like Tom DeLong or you trust him or not, I, I give him a lot of credit for what he's accomplished. And uh, if you are strictly talking about the entertainment realm, Movies, TV, music, books. I, I, I'd, uh, I think he's got a lot of credibility in those venues. Let me just finish off, gents. We've got a couple of minutes remaining, and you've been very, very generous with your time. I really have appreciated this. Um, I want to look forward to what still may happen this year with a little bit of a quick fire, but getting both your opinions. Now, you mentioned Lou Elizondo, George. I'll come to you first. We know Lou is currently penning his book. Uh, that could come out this year. I'm going to hedge my bets and say early next year, potentially, for that one. But what are your expectations from from Lou's book? I really don't know. I mean, hopefully there could be some clarification of some of the gaps in the story. Uh, there, you know, Since our book, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, came out, people have tried to characterize it as an attack on Lou, or you know, people have taken cherry-picked bits and pieces to attack his credibility. Here's why he's not telling the in the story. It was never an attack on Lou. There is a consistent narrative in between that from OSAP to ATIP to the UAP task force to AIMSOG, and it's easily uh, verifiable. I hope that Lou will be able to tell us, uh, fill in some of the gaps in what we know about the ATIP period. Colm and I can talk to you all day about OSAP. We can't really tell you uh, exactly what was going on with ATIP because so much of it was under the radar and unofficial. You know, as he mentioned, that nobody had a full-time job working for ATIP. No one. Doesn't mean it wasn't a real program. People, when we made those kind of statements that ATIP didn't have a, a single full-time staff member, they see that as an attack on Lou Elizondo, and it is not. It was just a different kind of a program. The fact is the work that they did that took Lou to TTSA and then to the New York Times changed everything. You know, it, it changed everything. So I, I hope that he will share with us what his journey has been like. Um, and I, I know Lou pretty well. And it's been tough. It's been tough on him and his family, uh, the kinds of things that he's had to endure, both from the public, the UFO public, the UFO Twitter public, 
and uh, and his former colleagues at the Pentagon, they really come after him. You know, he was telling me in the first, very first interview we did, January of 2018, uh, that the guys that were left behind who were surprised when he showed up on that stage with Tom DeLonge in October 2017, and then on the front page of the New York Times, they were pissed off, and they let it be known, and they're still pissed off. You know, we've seen the implications, the the ramifications of that, the battles with the the inspector general and his former, Lou's former boss, this Gary Reed guy. Uh, that's real. You know, what he's gone through uh, has been brutal. And I look forward to hearing that story because the public needs to hear it. This is this is not a game. This is real. Any expectations from yourself, Colm, in terms of Lou's book? Um, I would guess that the the book is going to go through um, a review process just like our book went through. So I don't know if it's going to be published this year. Uh, It really depends on how fast Dobser, it took took Dobser 14 months to go through our book. Um, It probably is a lot quicker than, um, you know, I think depending on what's in his book, I guess it will, will be, uh, will dictate the length of the review. But, you know, I would like to see more detail from Lou on uh, fundamentally what did ATIP uh, do, uh, what did it accomplish, what reports were written, uh, what what kind of, uh, I mean, y- you can talk generically about cases without giving uh, classified information away. And, you know, I, I would like to have more information um, uh, to fill in those gaps. Um, but, you know, I, th- I think, I think George is right. I mean, I think it's been one hell of a roller coaster since Lou left the, uh, OUSDI all the way back in, uh, late 2017. It's been a hell of a roller coaster. Can I just ask you a quick question regarding that, um, vetting process the book goes through? If you put an inaccuracy in the book, is that something that would be flagged and have to be removed? Or if you out and out lied about something, again, would that have to be removed? Or could it still be left in? Well, it depends on uh, who's doing the reviewing and how familiar they are with the programs on the topics. Because, you know, um, I spoke about the, the revolving door at NASA. The revolving door at DOD is also pretty uh, active. So um, it really will, would depend on uh, the level of scrutiny that, that something like that would get. So yes, inaccuracies can stay in there. If there are people um, who are on top of that, um, you know, uh, inaccuracies will, will stay in there. Um, it, it, it really depends on the level of scrutiny. Our, our book went through a couple of different reviews from individuals and it went through uh, three, at least three, maybe four separate departments uh, that had a stake in, uh, in in the various parts of the book. So um, I don't know what Lou's book will contain. Um, you know, he's had a long, long uh, history in counterintelligence and all of that. So a lot of that would be off limits in terms of anything you put in the book. So um i it'll be interesting i'll be interested to read the book yeah i think many of us will and i hope it's vindication for a lot of what lou has said and obviously george like you say it clarifies a few points as well um a quick yes or a no from both of you colm start with yourself will we get more hearings in the u.s this year on ufos 
Hearings, um, it really depends on how energetic Congress are, I think. I think, you know, it's becoming obvious that um, the office of, of OUSDI are, are sort of, they're not exactly a, a, you know, they're not lighting the fire on this topic. So it really depends on how in, a, aggressive Congress are. But I do know that in the next month or so, there's going to be some major revelations in terms of congressional input into the process whereby, um, you know, there's, as you know, there's, um, there's a, a budget that's uh, for 2023 is being written. And so the appropriation and the authorization uh, language is pretty well all written and settled and being negotiated behind the scenes uh, for, for that budget. So there, there will be language inserted into, the, into this um, authorization act um, in, in order to give more support to the general UFO topic. And I know that that's going to be announced in the next two to four weeks. Um, but I, and I think that will be a shot in the arm, depending on how comprehensive the language is uh, in terms of supporting this, uh, this whole process. Because, you know, you've got the very, very high quality uh, Senate, Senate and, and congressional staffers and Senate, Senate people and Congress people on the one hand, and then you've got the, uh, the people in the Pentagon who are not exactly ball of fire in, in terms of what they're willing to do or going the extra mile to make, uh, to make hearings happen. So it's, it's going to be a very interesting tug of war. George, I'll put the final question to you. Um, what is the likelihood that we get more footage or images released this year as pertains to UFOs, obviously? I think there's a pretty good chance we're going to see some footage. I think there is almost zero chance we're going to get some footage from the Pentagon itself. I, I think it's the release will come from somewhere else. Uh, it'll be confirmed as, as real stuff. Um, I don't know exact date on when that could happen, but it, it's out there. There's material that that needs to be vetted. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think there's any. I don't detect any kind of appetite from the Pentagon to release much meaningful footage. We saw the clip. You saw it in the hearing. Whoop de do. You know, we were just bowled over. You could have been knocked over with a feather about that dramatic footage that we saw. We know damn good and well they've got better stuff than that. We know damn good and well they've shown better stuff than that to members of Congress behind closed doors. Why don't we get to see it? I, you know, I suspect that they can use the national security excuse. Uh, there's only so much they want to uh, alert our adversaries to about how far along they they are on this study. So I, I am not encouraged. Uh, you know, it's going to have to take Congress to keep their feet to the fire on this because, as Colm has mentioned, uh, the Pentagon drags its feet. It always has. It is hostile to this topic, at least to the public release of information about it. It doesn't want to be told to go out and investigate this. Um, you know, there are individuals in the Pentagon, of course, who are uh, avid supporters of the idea, who want uh, some kind of a more public disclosure, who think it deserves to be investigated. But I think they're not in positions of authority. Uh, the people who are calling the shots don't want this to, to move forward in a meaningful way. We'll see when the budget numbers come out. Is it going to be, you know, one number I heard kicked around was $35 million. If they get $35 million for this AIMSOG or whatever they want to call it, that'd be pretty good. That'd be great. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. 
gentlemen, can I just thank you both for your time? You've been very, very generous. And I hope to have you back on before the end of the year. And just to remind folks, I'm going to do the YouTube thing here. You can still get your copies of Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. I recommend it thoroughly. Uh, I know a lot of listeners have both bought the book and had the audiobook as well. So please do check that out. And gentlemen, thank you very much again for your time. Thanks, Andy. Thank Bye. you. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself. Then I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head. And everything was weird and everything was red. And I called up my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And they think I should see. Because it doesn't really scare me. If you really want to know who I think they'd be, then it's you and me, and us and we, and him and her, and that and she, and that thing over there, and what's that, Jay? Thank you.